0: Welcome everyone to the Dining on a Dime podcast, where we give you tips on how to save on your monthly food budget. Now we give you the absolute best foodie news, and our professionals will give you recipes and cooking tips. So let's get the show started. All right, everyone, welcome to Dining on a Dime. For our listeners around the world via the podcast, today's show will be all about desserts, pastries, and events uh, for our listeners on WWDB Talk Radio. Uh, our show is going to have special guests, Marquesa Jezwaldi. She is the owner of All Petite Delice in Wayne, Pennsylvania. And Phyllis Jablanowski, She is the owner of Eventricity. And those will be our guests today for our listeners around the world via the podcast. Let's get started. Chef, let's tell our listeners uh, about desserts. We're going to teach you a
1: lot about desserts in the first opening. So pastries, desserts, you know, is is something. Food cooking is is an art. Pastry is a science. Pastry, unless you have a great deal of understanding about food science, I do not suggest that anyone tries to take on pastry just, well, if I mix this and this and this. You know, it takes a long time to understand that. So it's something I love to bake. I am one of the few people who can go back and forth and I can be a pastry chef. I can be, you know, front of the house and just working uh, out there and I can jump back and create dishes. So it is a rare mix of skills, but it's fun. You know, pastry to me is the most satisfying because you absolutely, you know, generate that wow factor. And so many things are important. You know, a, a very cool little interesting thing there's a war that took place. Yes. <laughs> a great pastry war. It, it took place. It was a battle between Mexico and France where France actually occupied part of Mexico during that war. And, you know, it started because some French soldiers kind of went into a, uh, a French pastry store uh, shop in Mexico and they damaged the shop. And the pastry chef had some ties to the French governor, the government and, you know, the, that's actually in my notes. That's you know, why I was like, they demanded, to, you know, to be repaid and they didn't. And, and a war broke out. That's how important pastries are. <laughs> so we're really going to get into a lot more when we talk about, you know, Marquesa's business, who is, you know, a, an absolutely fabulous uh, French pastry shop here in the local area. But, you know, pastries are the thing that warms the heart. Sadly, during the you know, heart of coronavirus outbreak when everybody was at home, it was hard to bake. I felt like I was out buying illegal drugs trying to get, (laughs) you know, yeast. I was like, I can't find yeast. I I, I know how to bake. I could not get pastry flour. I went to the store to get pastry flour. I could not get it. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be real honest with my listeners. Most of the people buying pastry flour didn't even know what pastry flour was (laughs) or why it's different. They were just buying flour. So it's it's a very interesting thing. And there is a difference between pastry flour and bread flour and high-gluten flour and all-purpose flour. The one flour I'll tell you never to buy – well, two – don't ever buy pre-sifted because if you think about the idea of we're going to take flour, we're going to sift it, we're going to put it in a bag and put it on a shelf. That's kind of the stupidest <laughs> thing in the entire world. It's going and the to other compact things, again. Right. And then the other thing is you don't need self-rising flour. Okay? Just add the baking soda, baking powder yourself. Avoid those two, Save yourself some money. But I'm going to go back to you, Kevin, with some of your wonderful things.
0: Yeah, well, you see, I'm kind of like the court jester. I give the fun facts uh, during the show. Uh, the chef is the expert. Amorous is a, uh, a, a talented, home cook.
2: talented home, home cook, cook, food photo journalist. But
0: you do not go to me for cooking and advice. I, I can't even make ramen. But I am the court jester, and I will give you some fun facts. The recipe for red velvet cake was made public due to a revenge factor because when a woman asked for the recipe at a restaurant, they charged her one hundred dollars. She was so angry that she had to pay a hundred dollars for the recipe that she ended up sharing it and that is how the red velvet cake recipe got out.
2: I thought that actually happened with a couple of different places probably that, that um that actually made the customers pay for for it but um, I wanted to jump in before we actually dive into anything else. part of why you know I wanted to bring on um our guest today is because it is National Pineapple Upside Down Cake Day, um, and then it and then on t- the twenty third, it's going to be National Cherry Cheesecake Day. So I wanted to like incorporate av- everything that was like sweet and delicious, and you know, and we being... got some
0: good uh, dessert advice later in the show. Also, but exactly, I guess, yes.
2: And, and from a, a flour perspective, one, one thing I didn't hear you, you know tie in there, because I think it's another gluten-free option, is the top, tapioca flour. Isn't that a
1: gluten-free option? Tapioca flour is certainly a gluten-free option. There are several gluten-free options out there. Tapioca flour is certainly one of them. Chef, I have a question for you.
0: Uh, Jay, Leno famously, Jay Leno famously sampled a 125-year-old fruitcake on his show. And they
1: said that was because it was made with alcohol. That is correct. So traditional fruitcakes, real fruitcakes, are very um, high in alcohol content. So it's similar to a rum cake making. Now, anybody who loves a rum cake and you literally pour the rum over there, I'm going to give you a great suggestion. A wonderful place here in the city of Philadelphia called Philadelphia Distilling. Philadelphia Distilling makes – one of their products they make is a moonshine. It is a salted caramel moonshine. Oh, So forget Italian rum cake, and I know all my Italian friends are going to – I just got slapped by one a moment ago. But, you know, okay. A variation of Italian rum cake. Take that cake and dump some of this salted caramel moonshine on it and just indulge. You will be happy, then intoxicated and you wake up happy.
2: <laughs> well, one of my big tricks when I'm baking is I actually use alcohol in place of, you know, your your flavor cuz they do like yes, vanilla bean uh, scraping out the vanilla bean that that's obviously your go-to, your initial like hey, like if I want something to be ta- to taste good and it's made with vanilla Use the actual peapod for it because that makes a huge difference on your taste.
1: One of the other things that's very important to realize, too, is you can get a simple vodka, you get a simple rum, and if you buy vanilla bean in bulk, Mm -hmm. to just throw them in there and let it flavor them. Then when you need a vanilla bean, you pull it out, you scrape it, so on and so forth, but then... After six months, you have that really wonderful vanilla flavor in that, you know, vodka or rum or whatever that works so well.
2: Exactly. And then you can tie it around and utilize that uh, vodka or rum and, turn, you know, bake it into things. Like I make my pancakes from scratch, but guess what I use? Vanilla flavored vodka.
1: <laughs> nice. Now, where I'm going to differ on that, I don't put it in batters. I put it on at the end because I don't want to lose the alcohol. (laughs) That's just me. And
0: like I said, our show, Dining on a Dime, you're listening on WWDB Talk Radio, and you're driving home uh, 6 p.m. Tuesday night. Uh, I'm the court jester. I cannot make ramen noodles. But we have a professional chef, highly accomplished chef, who has cooked for the Pope. (laughs) And then we have an excellent home cook. So I'm the guy that's giving you the fun facts as they're giving you the information, here's my next fun fact: McDonald's in Hong Kong actually offers wedding packages, and the wedding cake is stacks of apple pie.
2: Now, what what do you think of that, Phyllis? Who's, who's yes, kind Phyllis of like her
0: guest. mouth?
2: Her mouth is a, a gap.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like everybody's getting into the wedding business. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
0: Exactly. There's
3: some
2: competition.
0: <laughs> but, Chef, uh, any tips on pies that uh, well you can offer our listeners?
1: Pie dough is one of the simplest things in the entire world to okay. make. It requires a couple basic things to make it right. So, first of all, cold water ice cubes in the water, crushed ice in the water is really good because – when you make your pie dough, you want specks of butter to remain because when that melts, it spreads all through and makes an extremely flaky pie crust. If my pie crust isn't flaky, I'm not really happy with my pie. So that's a really <laughs> important thing.
2: And since we're all coming out of a quarantine, I'm going to just put a little plug in there. Cutting the butter into the flour takes a little bit of arm effort. So, you know, you're getting a little exercise before you consume your butter, butter crust.
0: <laughs> and how about this, chef? You'll love this. In 1936, Jell-O came out with a cola flavor, and it didn't even last a year. They got rid of it. That, cola that, flavor Jell-O. That Can is absolutely
1: correct. There are a couple companies who have come out with a knockoff of that in the last couple of years, and, you know, variations of that. Knox did, I believe, came up with one. Um, it was not a very successful product, no. They've and, tried some others, but Cola was a real big
0: one. Do you have anything? I know people that actually sneak jello into other desserts. Uh, do you have anything like I, that?
1: I don't use flavored jellos very okay. often. And even when I make it at home, I try to use a clear gelatin and a lot of fruits. And I make a, few, a fruit puree and do it with a, a regular, like Knox gelatin packet. I do it that way.
2: Or, you know, add alcohol to the jello o and... Okay. Well, that, that,
1: requires a little, that requires a little bit more gelatin mix, but yes, absolutely. And did you guys
0: know that ice cream in some type has been around since 200 B.C.?
1: Who would have thought? So ice cream has been around for centuries. If you're local to the state of Pennsylvania, so we all, you know, clear understanding, Pennsylvania is the number one location for teaching people how to make ice cream. Nice. So Penn State University has an ice cream program. The um, Penn State Creamery has taught Ben and Jerry's and most of the leading um, ice cream manufacturers you know, in the country. I took the class there. It's an absolutely fabulous class. If you're serious about making ice cream, please understand that the class is very science-based. It is pretty much just a formula book. That's fantastic. But Penn info. State Creamery yeah. cannot get ice cream outside of that area. They do not ship. Why? Because they exceed the USDA butterfat content for mass distribution of ice cream. See, that's the
0: kind of info you get on our show. If you're listening around the world, we had listeners in all over the world last week. Uh, this is the kind of info our show gives. We have a professional chef who is very accomplished. He has cooked for the Pope. We have a very talented fo- food photo journalist uh, who is also a talented home cook. And then you have me who loves fun facts. So today's show is outstanding. We have a very successful and talented uh, pastry, uh, a, uh, pastry bakery.
2: Sho- yeah, a pastry chef and who-
0: bakery. And we also are going to be talking to Phyllis, who uh, is really going to let our listeners on WWDB. She's really going to let them know how to help in uh, the event industry.
2: And how you can get started with your next event by going to support the the organization of Let P.A. Marry Us.
0: So let's get the show started. We'll be right back with our first phenomenal guest. You can now listen to all of our past Dining on a Dime
1: podcast,
0: plus see over 600 restaurant reviews with photos by going to www.phillyrestaurantreviews.com. And we're back. Chef,
1: introduce your fantastic guest on today's Dessert and Pastry Show. It's an absolutely wonderful honor to introduce Marquesa Giswaldi, who is a wonderful example of the benefits of vocational education. Uh, Marquesa actually got her education in a vocational high school and then at a local community college, showing that if you have the talent and the drive, that you can achieve greatness. Marquesa is the hottest pastry chef on the main line and owner, a young owner, of A Delice. Welcome, Marquesa.
4: Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it.
1: So going back, um, I, you know, what I know about you and, and going back a long time, tell us about how you got started. I mean, I guess your first education was with the wonderful Fritz Blanc from Dos Cheminis. But tell us about how you got to where you are now, what, what your education was and what restaurants you worked in to become the owner of the hottest French pastry location in the city.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I got my start at going to a technical high school. I started in the fall of 2002 as a freshman, and uh, I decided I wanted to do culinary arts. Um, At the same time, my dad had lost his job at U.S. Steel. Uh, They were shipping jobs overseas, so he was unemployed, and the Pennsylvania State gave them the opportunity to be retrained, so he decided to go to the restaurant school at Walnut Hill College. So the cool part about that was he was going to college for culinary at the same time I was going to high school for it. Uh, so he had two internships. Uh, he was at Rosewood Caterers, which is uh, in the Frankford, North Philadelphia, the Northeast section of Philly. And he was also working at Du Duchemonnais, which was on 12th and Locust uh, with Chef Fritz Blanc. Fritz was there for upwards of 25 years. And while my dad was an intern there, he said to Fritz, he was like, hey, chef, my daughter is going to high school for culinary. She wants to be a chef. You know, do you think maybe she could come down for a day? And Fritz was like, oh, yeah, she wants to be a chef. OK, we'll bring her down and we'll bring her in and we'll see if she really wants to be a chef after she works one day. After the first day, um, it was incredibly terrifying <laughs> as a 14-year-old to step into an authentic, you know, French restaurant. And I made it through the day and Chef Fritz asked me if I wanted to come back. And I said, yes, absolutely. So I spent every Saturday for a year and a half going down to Ducheminé and just working in the kitchen, just doing like simple stuff, simple prep and mise en place, like making the beans for the rack of lamb or like cookie cups and things like that. So I got my start at, you know, Duchenne, and I was there for a year and a half, and I think that was, like, the deciding factor for me uh, to whether I wanted to be, uh, you know, career pursue the path of being a chef as my career. Uh, so then after, you know, spending time at Ducheminet, I graduated high school, uh, and then after graduating high school, I applied to Bucks County Community College for their pastry apprenticeship program. I did my apprenticeship uh, at Annie B's Confections, which was a commercial bakery in Newtown for three years. Then after that, I moved on to Parks Casino, where I was the pastry chef of Parks Grill for two years. And then um, I took a little bit of time off because the last six months of my time at Parks, I picked up the uh, substitute baking teacher at position at Bucks County Technical High School. So it was cool because five years after I graduated high school, I got to be the substitute baking teacher and, you know, kind of experience a bit of a role reversal there. So I had the opportunity to just take the summer off and figure out what I wanted to do next. And um, at that time, Kevin Spraga, who won season seven of Top Chef, he was getting ready to open his Center City restaurant, his flagship restaurant on Broad and Pine, I applied for the pastry cook position. I got the position, and then I spent five years with Kevin. I worked my way up from pastry chef – or, sorry, pastry cook to assistant pastry chef to eventually being the corporate executive pastry chef for the whole restaurant organization. I had the pleasure of opening up all five of his restaurants, and I stayed with him till about six weeks before – his two restaurants closed, Spraga and the Fat Ham. Um, so after spending five years with Kevin, it was just time for me to move on, time to, you know, see what else was out there. I kind of hit the glass ceiling of opportunities for me at the restaurant group. I did a little bit of um, – spent a little bit of time at a restaurant in Philadelphia, or in Fishtown called W.M. Mulherron Sons. And about two months into working at Mulherans, I think I just realized that I just didn't want to do the restaurant life anymore. I spent my first two weeks at Mulherin's, um, working 14 hours a day, you know, two d- two weeks in a row straight. I didn't have a day off. So after that, it was kind of like, all right, like maybe this is going to get a little bit better. And then, you know, I got my two days off, but it was kind of like, Ugh, it just was, you know, just kind of over the whole restaurant scene. At the time, I was 29 years old. I was starting to feel the comings of like, you know, being a young 30-year-old person, like, you know, what am I going to do next? What's the next step for me? I didn't want to do the high stress, anxiety environment of working in restaurants for the rest of my life. So my husband, who was, we were Dating. We were just dating at the time. We weren't even engaged. He was like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. I think maybe I'd want to, like, own my own spot. And he said, well, do you want to, like, open your own spot or do you want to, you know, look for an existing business? And I said, I'd really like to open my own spot, but I don't know if I had anything. I don't know if I have anything that's, like, original enough to, you know, that's going to capture a clientele. And he's like, well, what do you think about an existing business? And I said, it depends. So he went on a Google search and he literally typed in bakeries for sale and O Petit Delis popped up. So it was about 4 years ago at this time that we were on the search for uh, an existing business and we found Au Petit Delis and it just it just looked it just seemed like such a perfect fit. It was a classical French patisserie. Um, it was owned originally owned started and owned by patrick gothrin or patrick gochon he was the very first pastry chef at lebec fen with, with george perrier um so that was really incredible to learn when we were researching the business and then we got to meet with patrick and his wife nina and after meeting Patrick, it just seemed like the perfect fit. Um, We bantered back and forth about different people that we knew through the restaurant industry. You know, he's been doing this. He was doing it for upwards of 50 years at this point. And just to see and know and hear that we knew a lot of the same people and just had a, the same vision and the same thought process was really comforting and really reassuring to know that, you know, I could possibly – take over his business and carry the torch. Um, And it just, you know, it just made sense. So we found some uh, investors to back the loan and start us up with some working capital. And as of October of 2017, I had owned the business and Patrick retired.
1: Well, you filled a great set of shoes, uh, having been around one of our co-hosts. Uh, this afternoon, Phyllis Chabonowski, we've been in the wedding industry in the city of Philadelphia a long time. So Appetite, the lease was something we certainly knew well in their wedding cakes and their, his ability and, you know, coming from Lebec Finn. As a young business owner, what is the biggest differences that you found between the expectations and the vision versus the reality of running a small business? I mean, you came into this at a fairly young age probably very different in you know the expectations versus what the realities are the day-to-day and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who have the idea of starting a small business so if you can give us a little insight on what you've learned
4: yeah absolutely so uh, the first thing that I uh, first thing that I learned that took me the longest time to figure out was that I needed to put my ego aside Um, working in restaurants, I got so used to being like the big fish in the small pond and thinking how great I am and I'm so cool and amazing and I have all the best stuff and everybody's just kind of like, oh, you're so great. You should, you know, be owning your own stuff and you're so awesome. And I was like, yeah, like, I'm cool. I know what I'm doing. And then I just expected that everybody who came to the bakery would just accept that you know patrick retired i took over and i thought my stuff was better i thought i was better i thought my you know poop didn't stink i thought it was so great and amazing and uh that not that was not the case um it i learned very quickly that it didn't really matter uh right at the start it didn't matter what how talented i was or that i had all these great new ideas um I made the mistake at uh, probably about 10 months into buying the business, I changed the whole menu, um, got rid of all of Patrick's pastries, I put on pastries that were, some of them were my invention, some of them were the employees that I had at the time, their invention. Um, And I just, we closed for 10 days and I just like totally flipped the script on everybody. And um, a lot of the, the pastries were poorly executed because I just didn't know what the heck I was doing um i really thought going into this that it was like oh if i can you know work in a restaurant i can easily run a bakery that's no problem and that did not happen so after watching my sales plummet like 70 (laughs) percent over like eight to ten months from the pastries that i had implemented uh it was like a real wake-up call when i saw how much debt i was in how Little foot traffic I was getting, how few orders we were receiving on a weekly basis, and it was like, oh God, like what the heck did I do? So at that point, I just decided to kind of flip the script again, and we went back to all of Patrick's original pastries. And once I made that change, I saw the business bounce back immediately. So if I had to do it all over again, I never would have changed anything. I would have had more respect for the product and the institution uh that Opetit Delice is because I just didn't get it. I just thought I could just go in there and change things and everybody would love me and that was not the case. So, learning that like I had to take a step back and, you know, put stifle my ego and just do what was important and focus on the product, focus on the customer service, focus on what the customers wanted and focus on the cash flow and where the money goes and what money comes in and what money comes out, then um, once I learned all that, it's it's made a huge difference in the business.
1: I so appreciate your honesty. And that advice that you just gave is so important to so many people in this industry. There's so many people who come out and have incredible talent and they have, you know, these pedigrees coming out of CIA or different schools and they think that, you know, they can do anything. And, and the advice that you just gave them a moment ago is is so vital. So it's been an interesting couple of years for you there at Appetit Delis. Um, tell us about what it's been like running a small business, obviously pre-pandemic, and now that we're into mid-pandemic. What, you know, pivots have you needed to make? What, how has this affected you there? Um, and what do you see, you know, in the very near future?
4: Sure. So pre-pandemic, um, I think I have a unique case because because I decided to change things and blow through uh, blew through a ton of cash and lost a lot of customers. Um, once once I changed things back into what Patrick was selling and didn't we didn't we have all the same pastries, but I think I've just made them like uh, just improve them just by a little bit, making sure that they're fresher, more consistent, um, that the quality is higher, using higher-to-quality ingredients, just giving it a little bit of breath of fresh air. Um, so that started around July of 2019, and I could see through the sales that we were picking up and we were doing better and doing better in business, but it wasn't quite gaining the traction that I had hoped, but I knew we were on the right path. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, In March of 2020 it was easily the most terrifying time in my life Um, I had to lay off all my employees Um, I told everybody you know you guys are laid off nobody's fired go file for unemployment you're welcome to wait this out Um, if you want to wait this out and wait for me great I would love to hire you all back but I wouldn't I told everybody I was like I don't expect anybody to wait around I said you guys need to do whatever you need to do to take care of yourselves take care of your family Um, and if you if when the opportunity comes to bring you back I'm gonna call you and if you don't come back there's no hard feelings Um, so it was scary because not only did I lose all my staff but I lost pretty much all of my business Um, all my wholesale accounts disappeared Uh, we try to reach an average daily sales goal of a thousand dollars a day um, in the retail front at best we are doing eighty dollars a day Um, So to see the sales drop so dramatically and the impending doom of like, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to pay the loan that was literally due in like a week? It was, uh, you know, it's about a $3,000 a month uh, loan with a bank that has to be paid. The bank doesn't care about what goes on in the world. You know, they're like, hey. No, there's no mercy there at all. No, not at all.
1: Marques, if we could hold for one second. We have a caller that has a question for you. So let's go to the caller. Uh, I believe the caller's name is, uh, Tony Rudy. Yes, sir. <laughs> Tony, welcome, welcome to dining on a dime. You have a question oh. for Marquesa?
5: Yeah, I'm a big fan for years of, uh, Marquesa's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Marquesa's cooking and so forth. Uh, at Marquesa, I had a question. I understand you kind of went to a unique high school, uh, yeah. and the way it was set <laughs> up. Um, what kind of role do you think having the ability, if you can explain it to people, in a really neat situation how you had technical and academic all in the same building, 9 through 12, how, what kind of role do you think that played in forming what you wanted to do?
4: Um, well, I think that the beautiful thing about the technical high school is that you get the academic and the technical education and even if you decide that you don't want to have – you don't want to take the technical education that you had and pursue it with a higher training, it gives you something to fall back on. Um, so I – even though I've dedicated my whole life to, you know, baking and pastry and culinary, if I decided that I didn't want to do that if I wanted to be um, – let's say I wanted to be an engineer or an English professor or, I don't know, any – an anthropologist and – uh just knowing that I have that skill and that trade um, to rely on that I spent, you know, four years at a technical high school learning, um, that for me was one of the biggest benefits of, um, of going to a technical high school. It's be- it's become invaluable to me.
1: And I'm sure that the yeah, business I- that, you know, the business studies and And the academics played a big part in being able to run a business today and understanding, you know, the finances and and everything in the economics that go with that as well.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Tony, you know, uh, we, I was your student uh, my senior year in your micro macro economics class. And uh, there was a lot of things that I learned that I still carry with me today, so not only the education on the technical side, but um, some of the academic classes, yours in particular, that I had, have impacted my life and I carry with me in the, at this point and probably well into the future.
5: Yeah, I always, uh, well, thank you. And I always thought, how cool would it be? I just imagine a world across you know, what we do times America how neat that would be to have give every child that opportunity um, and what we could really be producing. And uh, you are a tremendous example of that. So I just wanted to call in. I am your, absolutely one of your biggest fans. So very proud of you, Marquesa, uh, for sure. And, Gene, uh, thank you very much for uh, having me on and be able to uh, tell Marquesa as well.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Tony.
5: All right. Thank
4: you, Tony. I appreciate it.
5: All right. Good luck, guys. Bye now.
1: So, Marquesa, you were you were discussing, you know, what happened with your staff. And now that you're back or, or coming back, when when did that change? When did that business begin to pick up to where you're, you know, what you're doing today?
4: You know, incredibly, it picked up once we hit, um, I can't remember what time of year it was. It might have been May or June of last year. Whenever it was that we went from from red phase to yellow phase and those restrictions started lifting I saw an immediate change and the one thing that I learned and I, I couldn't believe it because I am I, like through and through I am back a house like I don't have any front of house uh, customer service training I am very like um, I'm a very upbeat bubbly very effervescent Person and I, with a lot of personality to but say the like, least.
1: Yes, to
2: say the least. <laughs> I, I only so interacted much. with you for a little bit, and I still picked up on that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um but I also know that about myself that like I love attention. I'm, I'm never pass up an opportunity to like show off. And the one thing, the biggest thing that changed with the business was I was in the front. I had always hired somebody else. There was always somebody else out front. And it was because it was like, oh, you know, whoever's out front is just slinging pastries and it's just a transaction, like it really doesn't matter. But once I started being the face of the business and being up front, I saw the business change immediately. I started getting regular customers. I started a list, like a little, just like on a scratch clipboard, a list of regular customers and what they liked and I made it a point to memorize who they were and try to remember different things that they liked or try to remember their orders and I think at this point like now I must have like 100 regulars 100 people that I know by name or if I don't know them by name I know them by sight and if I don't know them by name or sight there's something about them that I remember that I can pick up and oh I know this I remember okay I remember you like this or that you like this so the customer service the guest interaction has really just made my business just go it's turned 180 degrees you know I went from a year ago doing maybe $15,000 a month in sales to now we're surpassing like 35 $40,000 a month in sales and I've been able to match the numbers that I was hitting when I first bought the business so
1: congratulations
4: on that, that thank is, you <laughs> that is wonderful yep. it is and even we um we did the we looked at the quickbooks and we did the math we found that um july through december of 2020 was even better than july through december of 2019 and that was in the middle of a pandemic And unfortunately for Thanksgiving, we lost, we lost like the few days before and the few days after we completely lost Thanksgiving, which is like my number two top busiest holiday. Even with missing that holiday, we still did better those last six months of 2020. So I only have, you know, the highest hopes for the future as long as we continue to keep the quality product, the quality of the product up, I can continue to be in the front and Work with our guests, and you know, just try to be impactful. So one of the one of the great takeaways I took from working with Kevin Spraga was he would sometimes come in and sit down on pre pre shifts with us, especially if we had like a big like Saturday night service. And he would always reiterate. He would say, "It's not you know 200 reservations. It's 200 opportunities to make a an impact on every single guest that." is coming in through the door and just being able to work with Kevin and his vision and his perspective on guest interaction and um, just customer service and guest service is what I think subliminally really helped shape the way that I interact with people in the front now. And I realize now I, I see it in the numbers and I see it in my customer's faces That having that kind of a positive attitude and treating people as though they're guests and and they're they're not a transaction, I've been able to see my business turn around completely. That's
2: amazing. Now, Marquesa, speaking and turning back over to customer service and making an impression, um, I have to say that, you know, you are like visually your desserts um, are amazing and stunning. You know, and so what are some of the things that you offer inside your your shop? But also, you know, this is I would love for you to promote, you know, what you sell and and describe some of the delicious like the fruit, the mixed berry fruit tart. That was amazing and beautiful. Um, And then, you know, before we have to let you go um, (laughs) before we have to let you go, uh, I would also like to find out where we can find you.
1: Well, we don't know that because Emrys did not share any of those wonderful <laughs> things she brought back. I had to say none of them made it to the studio today. That's okay. Phyllis and I are gonna come out one day and, and take a look and, and hopefully your business is gonna get much busier after our next guest does her presentation on, you know, the growth of weddings in the city, in the state of Pennsylvania. But yes, if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, what your specialty products are, what what you're you know, really proud of that you're doing there.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things I'm actually most proud of is taking the existing pastries and turning them gluten-free. And that was just a simple switch of, we were just using a, a Genois, which is just a, a classical French vanilla sponge cake. Um, and we turned, we stopped using the Genois and we started using a, a jaconde, which is just an almond, it's just an almond sponge cake. So taking that almond sponge cake and incorporating it into more pastries. At least half of my pastries in the shop are completely gluten-free. So we've been able to open up, you know, classical French pastries and really good tasting, you know, French pastries to people who have celiac disease or who have decided that they want to make a lifestyle change and go gluten-free. And I think being able to open up that opportunity to a wider customer base has really helped. Um, one of the most incredible pastries that we have is a, an Opetit Delice classic. It's called the Delice. It is a chocolate mousse with a hazelnut crunch and an almond hazelnut sponge. And if you are a fan of Nutella, this is a pastry for you. It is just the, it's got the mousse, the chocolate mousse in there. And then this hazelnut crunch, which is just like, honestly, it's just like praline paste, milk chocolate and Fouilletine, which is like a little crunchy, crispy pastry, but It's like it's the most popular pastry we have. It's absolutely incredible. Um, Another thing that we're also really well known for is our croissant, um, which are actually made by my husband, uh, who has zero uh, food service experience. Uh, My husband, Bruce, he comes from um, metal fabrication and uh, wire bending. He had a third generation uh, wire bending business in um, the Kensington section of Philadelphia um, so I needed somebody to make croissant about two years ago and he was like, Well, let me try it. So I taught him how to make croissant and these croissants that he makes are just they're so friggin' incredible. They're beautiful, they're light and fluffy, a little flaky, they they have this like beautiful flavor. We have seven different kinds. Um so I would say that we're best well known for our croissant and um some of the pastries that we have and Making it a point to highlight the fact that we're trying to open to um, more customer client bases uh, by having more gluten free pastries, and in the future, I would like to go completely vegan too. Uh, not just that, because it's all that's that's plant-based. absolutely
1: wonderful the plant based yes. idea. So, in yes. our last minute here, can you tell all our listeners? One, where you're located, how to get in touch with you, where to find you on the Internet, and then if you have any social media that personal or business-related, if you could share all that in our last minute.
4: Sure. So we are located at 162 East Lancaster Avenue in Wayne, Pennsylvania. We're across the street from the Wayne Hotel and a uh, secondhand uh, store called, uh, a consignment store called The Velvet Shoestring. Um, Our hours are Wednesday through Saturday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and Sunday from 9 to 2. Our phone number is 610-971-0300. You can find our website at www.opetite.com. We are on Facebook. We have an Instagram. It's at o.petite.delise. And if you want to follow my personal uh, Instagram account, it's at... Oops, sorry. It's at... Marquesa M. So we're on the internet. um Just you know, look it up, Au Petit Delice or French Bakery in Wayne, and you'll find us.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to uh let all our listeners get familiar with the wonderful work you're doing. Anybody who's listening, I strongly suggest that you stop by and try the fabulous French pastries. Uh, she has taken what was a cornerstone bakery and pastry shop and made it even better. Thank you very much, Marquesa. I appreciate it. As always, have a wonderful, wonderful day and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon.
4: Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and this opportunity. I really appreciate it.
1: Our pleasure.
0: Okay, now let's go to break and we have another great guest.
2: Tune in to Dining on a Dime to hear from Gene Blum, our chef, educator, consultant, and historian. You can find him across social media at IBFoodie2 or Gene Blum at ibfoodie2 at yahoo.com. And you can also tune in to listen to Amaris Pollock and find her across social media at arpollockus at gmail.com. We're back!
0: Chef, introduce our fabulous guest.
1: Well, at this time... Great honor, wonderful person, wonderful friend, somebody I've known for more years than I'd like to talk about. <laughs> uh, Phyllis Jabonowski, who is the principal of Eventricity Event Group, is a board member of the uh, local Pennsylvania Restaurant Logic Association, as well as one of the principals of a fabulous new organization here in the region called the Private Event Professionals of PA. The private event professionals at PA were actually founded during the pandemic to help support the event industry. What we're going to talk about today is something you've probably seen if you've been driving on the 95 or the Blue Route or the Turnpike. You've probably saw these wonderful billboards up there that say, Let PA Marry Us. And it's com, And it is a fabulous program that is going to help support and revitalize events professional but at this point in time let me start off by welcoming Phyllis
3: Thank you Gene. I'm so happy to be here with you
1: So Phyllis tell us what is the catalyst what what is well let's, let's start actually going to what is com. what's it all about
3: So com is a wonderful program where we let the public have a chance to have their voice be heard to get weddings and private events back up and running in the state of Pennsylvania. So what it does is if you can go to com, you actually get to click and send our wonderful governor um, an email or a tweet or a text message that says, hey, we would love weddings to happen. In Pennsylvania. And there are so, several different areas there. So if you're a, uh, a couple, you can go there and there's a place for you. If you are family and friends, there's a place for you. If you are an event pro, there's a place for you. And if you are a venue, there's a place for you. And our goal is actually to get 10,000 emails to the governor's desk so that we can have an impact in moving the needle and trying to get things open again in Pennsylvania.
1: So when you say get things open again, uh, you know, we all know that restaurant industry is moving along and the governor is, you know, opening up restaurants and all. What's different in the event world?
3: Funny you should ask that. Uh, that's really kind of the why PEP was started. So the hospitality industry has many facets to it. Certainly restaurants are one, and we see that there is a path forward for them. Hotels are another. There seems to be a path forward for them. But as far as the private event side, there's no plan and no path forward for private events. And so what we tried to do is get a voice that was um, a little stronger, right? We are typically many, many, many organizations, um, and and what we found is we did not have a seat at the table. And so we started uh, the PEP, which is the Private Event Professionals of Pennsylvania, in order to get those voices together and to kind of sing from the same song sheet, and to get a little bit uh, louder voice in the state. We hired a lobbyist to help us uh, engage with the governor's office and the secretary of health's office. We've had a lot of uh, meetings with people in the city of Philadelphia, and we are just trying to get people to understand that restaurants are open, but we are not.
2: And to bring that back full circle to our listeners mm-hmm. um, who are not event planners and are not caterers, this this is a big thing because across the board, across the U.S., I'm sure other states are actually facing something similar to this. So, you know, you're almost paving the way and, and being a guiding light to other states that might be having to approach this situation, too. Um, events are, I think, looped into some other um, selection of, you know, you can have X amount of people at an outside event. And, and I would hope that what you're doing um, would get the governor, the government to listen and, and give you a separate, you know, place you in a t- into a separate entity so that people who are listening can go, okay, now I can have my wedding, you know.
3: So there's a couple of things that you had in there, and I'm going to address um, each at a different time. One of the first things that we have to realize is that in Pennsylvania, we are probably the number two and sometimes the number three, depending on how you rank us, most restricted state in the country. Um, So we have nothing in the event industry that that we are doing to participate in moving us forward because we are really not, open in philadelphia we are not open so pennsylvania itself has 67 counties Mm -hmm. 66 of them are following the state guidance and then philadelphia is following its own guidance they're special (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that guidance is that currently you can have people gather inside but you cannot give them any food or beverage
2: and that kind of, you know, brings your party down.
3: Yeah, that just it's and most people aren't really up for that for five hours of standing around yeah. with amazing. Five hours on. with my family
1: and no beverages, I'm out the door.
3: <laughs> so that is really um, where we're going. Many, many states in the country are much more relaxed than we are. And yet their um, infection rates are also um, lower. than what we are so we we have this dichotomy right so we are very restricted uh but we still have infection rate so obviously what we're doing isn't really in my opinion moving the needle in the right direction one way or the other the other thing is that there's this perception that all the super spreader events are weddings and places where people are that's the perception um where they're using, and, and one of my colleagues uh, has actually filed a couple of times for FOIA requests to get the data, right, because it's always about the data. Um, there really is no data. The data is from March over a year ago, and it's from New England, and mm-hmm. it's from one event. So um, the data is not current, nor is it relevant, and they're not doing a good job of contact tracing in uh, the event market. So... What I say whenever I get the opportunity to speak to our um, legislators is the event industry can take no credit nor no blame because we've been closed for the year. Yeah. So we're it's closed. Um, so we can take no, no credit nor no blame. But we want to get back. You know, we are so excited to help um, folks celebrate again. Yeah, You know, celebrate everything. And this campaign, Let PA Marry Us, is easy because everybody has the same vision of a wedding. Right, they've got a vision of a wedding. Everybody knows what a wedding is. Everybody's happy to be there. Um, and in Pennsylvania, I have to say, we did not come up with this. New York came up with this campaign first. We kind of <laughs> took their work and okay. made it our own, <laughs> and made it our own. And we're hoping, you know, it was very influential in New York, and we're hoping that it will be influential and um, and help Pennsylvania because there are many events, many things that people yeah. want to celebrate, um, and frankly. Having it at a venue with a caterer, uh, an event that is professionally managed, that is the safest way to have an event. Mm -hmm. It's the safest way. Where the challenge comes in are at these home parties or backyard parties or everybody's in the house. It's the winter. We're in the house. Nobody's got a mask on. We're all hanging out. We're on the sofa, talking, eating. I reach in the chip bag. I put it in my mouth. I pick it up again. You know, it's just like if I had... Cheeto colors all over the thing. It's just not um it's just not true that professionally managed events are the problem. It's not. It's home events that are the problem.
1: One of the things that I heard in the discussion recently was you know, somebody who didn't understand the events industry, and they said, well, you know, I got married a couple years ago and I paid, you know, X, Y, Z money. It's ridiculous what you get paid. Why should I have sympathy for the caterers? And I explained (laughs) to them, one, you know, your numbers don't really work out. They're a very small profit margin. But two, even if you remove the caterers, this is something for everyone. You know, tell us how your program is not just about – you know, the wedding planner and the caterer, but who else this directly impacts?
3: So in order to host an event, especially a wedding, there are over 40 professions that could be involved with any wedding. So everybody from the tuxedo rental or the gown places or hair and makeup or the officiant or the limo driver or the hotelier or the rehearsal dinner restaurant, I mean, there are you know, the planner, the florist, the photographer. There are over 40 different professions that could be involved, suppliers that could be involved with a wedding. So I'm hoping that um, this will actually help us to get all of them recognized and not just, it's not just a caterer issue. There's really a lot of people. If you look at it, hospitality is the number two economic driver in the state of Pennsylvania as far as employees go. And we have 90% of our employees out of work.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, one of the other things that, you know, is is a big concern now, I know, you know, with the governor and, and the city of Philadelphia is that the city is not, as we discussed, following any type of guidelines that the state you know, puts forward. So is there any hope to be able to get through to the, you know, governor or to the mayor of the city of Philadelphia? Is there any plan that this might help that situation?
3: You know, we are certainly hoping so. We have reached out and through our lobbyists and through um, individual efforts, through the PRLA, um, Ben Fletcher, Melissa Bova, John Longstreth, um, we have really done a lot with trying to Um, engage, and get a seat at the table. They haven't really wanted us there, frankly, but we keep going anyway. we just like the kid that just keeps showing up and turned away, and we just show up again.
2: Perseverance. Yeah,
3: that's what what we do. But it's really important because all of us need, you know, we are starting to see things open up in the suburbs. So Pennsylvania lost weddings before to New Jersey because, you know, this virus is very smart. It knows not to cross... (laughs) The, the river, <laughs> and it knows not to cross from Philadelphia into Montgomery County. It's, so, all, it's also know.
1: proven to be adaptable where it's the most dangerous after certain parts of the evening. <laughs> That's
0: correct. <laughs> but I, I just want to interject real quick. Yeah. Uh, we talked to Dominic from the Drexelbrook. Yes. He he, his interview was eye-opening about the catering and event industry. But go ahead, Phyllis. Yeah,
3: no, and, and Dominic's one of the founders of PEP. So, yeah. um, you know, now as we're starting to open, our, our colleagues in Philadelphia are really stuck because they don't have anything. Yeah. Dominic and guys in the suburbs are starting to open a little bit. Now we have to have staff that comes back, right? Yep. And we're challenged because some of the staff is getting, you know, it's, more, it's easier to sit on the sidelines. Yep. And so now you have CEOs of companies be in the dishwasher or, yeah. you know, running staff. So we're excited to get back. We want our people to come back. We we have jobs available and, uh, you know, we are – we're ready to go.
1: Absolutely. So in our last minute, tell our listeners how they can get involved in making a difference, how they can help, you know, change the governor's plan and, you know, open his eyes a little bit about to what the people of the state of Pennsylvania want.
3: Well, I think there's two things. One – Please go to letpa dot com and let your voice be heard there. But the second thing is to call and get involved with your local officials. Call your you know local committeemen. Call your local congressperson or senator. Uh, they have to log all those calls. They have to log them. So you know one part me calling. They know me already. They just are annoyed by the fact that I'm calling again. <laughs> But if you we have enough of us calling, then there's like pressure on them to get to move, right? And, yeah. and, and look, all of us want the same thing. We want health and safety. We want the healthiest way, the safest way. We want our employees, our colleagues, our guests, our hosts to all be
2: healthy and
3: safety and have a great time all the way through.
2: Now, before uh, we go, can you let anybody out there who's listening who wants to throw a prom, have have a wedding or a private event, where can they find you? Yes. You can find me at Eventricity,
3: and my email is pj at eventricity.net. We are also on Instagram at eventricity, LLC.
1: That is E-V-E-N-T-R-I-C-I-T-Y. All right,
0: thank you so much, and that's such thank an important you. topic. So I, I really am grateful for you coming in today.
3: Thanks so much for having
0: us. All right, dining on a dime—the number one on all podcast, or I'm sorry, all social media platforms. phillyrestaurantreviews.com dot com for 120
1: of our past shows. Chef, where can they find you? Can find me across social media at either Gene Blum or IBFoodie two. Or you can always email me at ibfoodie2 at yahoo.com.
2: And you can find me at Amaris Pollock or A.R. Pollockus, A-R-P-O-L-L-O-C-K-U-S. And if you are looking to come on the show, give me me an email. Send me an email. It is myhandle at gmail.com.
0: And we will see everyone next week.